Okay, so after last week's sermon from Ezekiel 16, I thought it would probably be a good thing for us to look at something a little bit less confronting, a little bit less shocking. I know last week's sermon, I think some of the feedback I got was it was good, but it was really shocking um, to think of ourselves the way that Ezekiel, God really, describes uh, Jerusalem in that way is very confronting. When we finished looking at that passage, though, um, and what it had to say about the people's unfaithfulness to God, we saw that God's response to them, to humanity, was very different to the way that we would have responded had we been in that position. Even though God's people, who were literally rescued by him and given the riches of his kingdom during the age of King David and King Solomon, even though they threw all of that back in his face and treated God disgracefully, God still was faithful to his promises. In the face of a bride who was utterly unfaithful, God was a groom who remained steadfast and faithful even through the judgment that he sent on them. So this week, I want to pause for a moment, as I've said a few times now, to consider just what God did for us when he sent his son to die on the cross. Jesus came to fulfill all the promises that God made. And we have to see that as something stunningly beautiful after what we read last week. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and you know that they just didn't really understand a word that you said? Yeah, some wives are smiling. (laughs) Well, experts say that only 7% of the meaning of our communication comes through the actual words that we say. 7%. And yet we put so much time and effort into choosing our words carefully, don't we? When only 7% of what the person's going to walk away with has come through the actual words that we've chosen to say. 38% comes through the tone of voice that we use when we say them. And 55% comes through the visual cues, our body language, when we're speaking. I guess that explains why text is so fraught with danger and why we had to invent something called emojis to to try and get some of that body language in there because how many times can things go awry when we communicate by text? We really need the wider context of the conversation to be able to hear what people are saying, don't we? And reading about what Jesus did for us on the cross after hearing the hurt in God's heart caused by human unfaithfulness adds a whole new dimension to our understanding. And that's why I want to spend a good amount of time this morning looking at the wider context of what was written in this passage of Hebrews. There's such a beautiful message communicated in these verses and I want to make sure that we hear what's really being said. You see, we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but uh, we, some people say that it was Paul that wrote it, but there's, there's enough evidence for there to be some doubt that maybe it was another writer. 
But we do know that it was written to the Hebrew people as they were going through a very tough time. It was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were at risk of giving up on their faith because of the hardships that they faced as believers. They were being fiercely persecuted just for being Christians, physically beaten for their faith, their houses trashed and plundered because of who they were. And they were being thrown into prison simply because they were Christian. They were being publicly ridiculed for trusting Jesus. We have no understanding of that. Some countries do. Some places in the world that happens, but not here. It was written to a group of Christians who needed hope. And as you can imagine, there were some who shrunk back from their faith, like the way that Peter did when people came up to him on the night that Jesus was betrayed and he denied being a follower of Jesus. And there were others who learned to make compromises to keep the peace. There were some who held their faith firm in Jesus and continued to strive to honour him in the way that they lived. This book was written into that context to renew the confidence and strength that those people had in the God that they had declared they wanted to worship. And it does that by spending a lot of time looking at the truth of what Jesus did on the cross and how that was God building up all the way through time. All the, way from, all the way through from the beginning of Genesis. This book is, is so rich with language and imagery of the old covenant and the temple. It compares the worship of those early Christians to the worship in the old temple. temple. Not because one was right and one was wrong, but because the worship of the early church had its roots in the old covenant and in the old temple. It had blossomed out of that. Everything that had come before was there to prepare people for what was to come. It was there to provide the context that people needed to rightly understand what Jesus was about to do and what he had done on the cross and what that means even for us as Christians today. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, we can read that a description of the regulations for worship spelled out in the first covenant and the design of the temple. And before this, the writer has discussed the priestly system in place, the high priests of the past, the, what they did and how they facilitated the people's relationship with God. We read that Jesus was the great high priest in the footsteps of the great priest Melchizedek and how Jesus facilitates the worship of God's people under a new covenant. Chapter 9 details the, the layout of the temple and I've got a diagram of it right there for you so that you can picture what it talks about. The priests would go into the courtyard coming in from the right. You can see the purple line with the arrow going into there. They would come into the courtyard and there was an altar for the burnt offerings and the, the offerings were made for the sins of the people that they came and confessed to the priests. And the priests would give the, the burnt offerings 
on that, on that altar. Behind that, there was a, a large bowl of water, and it was called the laver. And this is where the priests would do the ritual washings that they needed to do in order to cleanse themselves of the contamination of the people's sins. You can see the, the order in which it's going. They, they, the burnt sacrifices for the sins and then the, the bowl of water to cleanse them from the dirtiness of those sins. And then behind that was the entrance closed off with a huge curtain. And it led into a room where there was a lampstand or a menorah with candles burning on it and a table with 12 loaves of bread on there. Each of those loaves of bread represented one of the tribes of Israel. And this was called the holy place. And then behind that, there was an altar of incense that was kept burning. And then there was a curtain separating out the holy place from the holy of holies. This was the place that only the high priest was allowed to enter. Only one priest in the entire kingdom of Israel was ever allowed in there because they were the high priest. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant containing the stone tablets that Moses had taken up Mount Sinai to have the law written on. And it had a few other things in there, obviously, as well. There was a container of manna from their time in the desert. There were a few things inside this ark. And the ark represented the presence of God with his people. The only time anyone went in there was in the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on this day, the high priest of Israel would summon up the courage to enter in, carrying the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat. The bull's blood was sprinkled on the ark to make atonement for the sins of the priesthood. The intention was that it atoned for any sins that the priests had committed that they hadn't been aware of. Likewise, the goat's blood was also sprinkled on the ark for any sins of the people that they had been unaware of. Outside the altar where they had confessed the sins that they had known about, but inside the blood for the sins that they didn't know about, but they knew they must have done something. Do you see the thinking in this? We are so inherently sinful that we do things without even being aware that they're sinful. Because we live in a world that teaches us that they're the normal things to do. The remnant of the people that talked about in Ezekiel that God preserved through his judgment had witnessed the unfaithfulness of Jerusalem and had learned from it that they too had the capacity to be unfaithful to God in many ways. All of us do. Every day I do things that hurt God's heart. Some of them I know about and willfully go ahead with still. Others I'm ignorant of because I'm human, not God. And my nature is so different to his. Yom Kippur was the one day of the year that taught God's people that truth. How could they ever hope to atone 
for all their sins completely when they knew there were sins they'd committed that they didn't even know about. They didn't even recognise them as sinful. Even the unintentional sins are still sins, aren't they? They're still things that make us incompatible with God and with relationship with him because he's so holy. Week after week, year after year, the blood of animals reminded the people that they were unholy, sinful, stiff-necked people, incompatible with the holiness of Yahweh. And yet in his grace, in his compassion and mercy, God had given them a way to have relationship with him because he loved them and he wanted them to be in relationship with him. He wanted them close to himself. It must have been a bit like a child who goes to the zoo for the first time and nervously, tentatively approaches the lion's enclosure. They'd been able to hear the roar of the lion from the front gate and it echoed all the way through the zoo. And the closer they got to the enclosure, the more and more aware they'd become that this lion was so powerful that it could actually hurt them. It could do them some real harm. Witnessing God's judgment on Jerusalem all those years before must have been very unsettling. C.S. Lewis touched on this in the book of Narnia when he wrote, Aslan is a lion, the lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The writer of Hebrews is making that point about this old system, the way it was designed to teach about what Jesus was going to achieve on the cross. For to a people who had seen the strength of that lion and his judgment on Jerusalem. So in Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 12, we read, but when, God, uh, when Christ came as high priest of the good things, that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The language is all about the earthly temple being foreshadow a foreshadowing of what Jesus was doing on the cross. The people no longer needed to keep making animal sacrifices because the sacrifice made by Jesus was what the old system was designed to get them ready for. Their purpose had been fulfilled in Jesus and they were no longer needed because Jesus had come to earth. And he'd done what was planned. In other words, Jesus had fulfilled all the law because the law was always about what he was going to do on the cross. In Hebrews 10 verse 1, we read, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, 
not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. This must have seemed like such a radical shift for the Jewish Christians. But it must have been also a huge relief. Imagine having the burden of Yom Kippur lifted off your shoulders. Imagine no longer wondering what sins you'd committed that you weren't aware of, that you hadn't been able to include in your regular animal sacrifices. Imagine having to come back to Jesus night after night and rack through your day to remind yourself of all the ways that you had messed up and confessing them to him. Imagine no longer having to rely on a high priest to go into the Holy of Holies once each year to atone for anything that you had missed. Imagine having that lifted from your mental worry by knowledge that the sacrifice that Jesus had made was so complete that it didn't just cover your sins, but it covered the sins of every single person in this church, every single person in this country, every single person throughout time. It's enough for all of that and then some. It's enough to cover the sins of those who have yet to be born. It covered the sins of everybody all the way from Adam and Eve to you and me. The atonement that Jesus won is sufficient to save every single person in the world if only they will surrender to his lordship and have it applied to their lives as well. Imagine being the unfaithful wife that's talked about in Ezekiel 16, who finally came home to be met by a husband who not only allowed you back in, but sacrificed himself so that you no longer had to live with the guilt of what you'd done. Under the old system, the priests would approach the Holy of Holies with great fear and trepidation, a rope tied around their waist in case they were struck dead inside the Holy of Holies and needed to be pulled out. The people had to keep their distance, separated from even getting close to God by great curtains. And the fact that only the priests were allowed to go in there and only one day a year. They had to wait for Yom Kippur to come around. One day when one man in charge of Israel's worship, could enter into that place and get their relationship with God back on track. But because of Jesus, under a new covenant, the separation of the people was no longer there. Jesus had made one sacrifice that covered every sin, seen and unseen, conscious or unconscious, past, present and future. No more waiting for Yom Kippur. No more animal sacrifices. No more waiting outside while the priest carried out the business of atonement for your sins like a father waiting in the waiting room while his wife is in giving birth to the child. And no more insecurity, wondering if there was something that you'd forgotten something you'd missed, 
that would somehow ambush you in the end. Something that would bring God's judgment on you the way it came on Jerusalem. How would that change your relationship with God? How would it feel to know that you no longer had to feel fearful of his judgment? What would your relationship with God be like after a change like that? The writer made it as plain and as simple as this in verse 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For generations, the Jewish people had lived under the stigma of their own unfaithfulness in a system of cleansing and sacrifice aimed at teaching them about the huge difference between themselves and God. God is holy. They were not. God is righteous. They were not. They knew themselves well enough to know that they were inherently sinful people. They'd made a mess of their marriage to God. They'd made a mess of it and they knew that they needed repeated atonement if they were going to continue to live in relationship with God because they continually, repeatedly messed things up. That's the relationship they had with God. That is until Jesus died on the cross. Now, as Christians, they were taught that Jesus' sacrifice was all the atonement that was needed. His blood shed once was sufficient for all their sins, for the sins of all people. It must have been hard to transition from a relationship with God mediated through priests to a relationship, uh, from a relationship that where you were held at a distance while someone communicated on your behalf. It must have been hard for them to feel that it was suddenly okay for them to come to God themselves. To come to the marriage relationship in person after all those years of waiting on the fringes. And yet the writer of Hebrews explains to them in verse 18, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, that's a big word, isn't it? Therefore, it's like the maps that you see in the shopping centres with an arrow pointing um, to, to, a, to a place. Where's my slide? I've got a picture there. There it is. It's, it's those maps where you've got a you are here arrow pointing and we look at the map and it helps us to work out which way to go. I'm here, therefore I need to go this way to get where I'm going. So to these Jewish Christians, the writer is saying... You are here. You stand on the work of Christ and the atonement that he earned for you on the cross. You stand on that. You are here. Because of the sacrifice that he made for you with his own blood. You are here. Because God has torn the temple curtains in two and you're no longer separated from God. You, are no, you no longer have to fear coming to the arms of your husband. Yom Kippur is past. You're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and you stand forgiven 
of all your sins from the past, the present, and even the ones you're yet to commit. Therefore, have confidence in your relationship with God. Jesus has done what the high priest was never able to do on your behalf. You no longer have to send a priest through the curtain. The altar of burnt sacrifices is no longer needed because of the sacrifice made by Jesus. The bowl of water, no longer needed for ritual washings because you have been permanently washed by the pure living water of Jesus Christ. You no longer need to have the blood of animals sprinkled on your behalf because Jesus has cleansed your guilty conscience and removed the burden of all the what-ifs that was raised year after year. Praise God, you are free from all of that. As Christians today, we have no idea what those Jewish Christians must have felt as the burden of their past was lifted off them because the there was a glorious new covenant made between them and God through Jesus Christ. To have been the unfaithful wife of Ezekiel 16 and then to be forgiven and brought into a deeper level of intimacy with, with God than ever before, how great would that have felt? What kind of God would do that? None of the other gods that they played around with were ever so faithful or so forgiving or so life-giving as this. But perhaps today we can see a little bit more clearly and appreciate a little bit more deeply the freedom that these people must have felt. Let's not take for granted the confidence that we have in knowing that we can come to God at any time we want instead of waiting in the courtyard of the temple for Yom Kippur. Let's not think too little of the privilege of coming here to worship God together. It cost Jesus his life. Therefore, let us hold unswervingly to our faith in Jesus. Let us not allow the lies of Satan to eat away at our confidence in what Jesus accomplished through his continual attacks, Satan's always having a go at us through our conscience. The Bible tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anything else is not from him. Let's not go back to living under condemnation for even the smallest thing, because every time we do, we somehow belittle the sacrifice that Jesus made on that cross. And it means a little bit less in our own hearts. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us spend our time and energy focusing on ways to bring that same relief to others, to the people around us. When we help others to experience the, the lifted burden of guilt and shame, the result is that we actually magnify the, the work of Jesus. What Jesus has done is such an extravagantly awesome and powerful thing that we should want to everyone to catch a glimpse of how great that is. We were the unfaithful wife, but look at the marriage that we're being called into now. So let's spur one another on 
to love and good deeds. Let's try to outdo each other in the amount of love that we show to each other because of the immense love that's been shown to us. The Bible says that it's our love for each other that will reveal who we're really married to. And of course that means that we need to be in the midst of God's people on a regular basis. I mean, how do we live out our new freedom in our worship if we're not here worshipping with the church? This is the part that we're called to play in helping the bride of Christ to persevere through tough times. This is what God wants us to be doing right here, right now. When God made the first covenant with the people of Israel, he said in Exodus 34, I'm making a new covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. The old system of animal sacrifices is no longer needed, but the heart of God for his people remains the same. Obey what God has told us to do through the pages of Scripture. And I can promise you that he will do his part. Because in verse 36 of Hebrews 10, we read, You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. I want to say to you today, hold fast to the faith you have in Jesus don't let any of the things going on around you take that away. The work that God has started in you, he will finish all the way to the end. I have absolutely no doubt in that. Understand the words I'm saying to you today. God loves you immensely. So much that he has made an enormous sacrifice so that you can have a genuine, real marriage with him, despite what your past looks like. Don't let Satan interfere with that. Don't listen to his lies about you. Today, because of Jesus, you can stand before God completely free from guilt and shame. You are not the shameful wife that we read about last week. Not any longer. You are God's beautiful, immensely loved bride. What a glorious gift that is. Would you pray with me? Father, what do we say when we stand before you and catch a glimpse of your love? What do we say in the face of all of our sin being dealt with. We can never repay you. Help us to never take it for granted. Help us to never relax and think that we don't need to be doing anything special because we're forgiven. Help us to be motivated by that love that you have shown to us. Give us that love that you have shown us to go to other people. Help us to be your children, resembling you, looking like you, sounding like you, 
everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen.